Greetings, everyone. This is Jim Emmerich. Welcome to the Chointcast, interviews and short stories from across the world that connect us with people who wish to share their stories about leadership, where this passion comes from, and the goodness that results. In episode 22, we visit Cornell University, Professor Barry Strauss's history and classics course, War and Peace in Greece and Rome. Professor Strauss led a conversation between the two of us about Leonidas and leadership, engaging the students as well. You can hear Barry and I pretty well, but it might be a bit of a challenge hearing the students. Enjoy the discussion and let us know what you think. So welcome to everyone who braved the weather. Uh, You'll be rewarded to know that this will be on the exam. So glad that you are here. So today we're going to take another look at the Battle of Thermopylae. We're obviously going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm sitting, I'm not standing. There's no PowerPoint, and we have a guest who I'll introduce to you in just a moment. Uh, It's also going to be a conversation. Uh, Our guest and I are going to have a conversation, but we urge you to ask questions and to join the conversation as well. Because the theme is going to be leadership and leadership lessons, good and bad, if any, uh, from ancient history. And we're going to focus on the Battle of Thermopylae and particularly on Leonidas. So Leonidas, um, you know from your reading, some of you uh, have been introduced to him by uh, the movie 300. And we're all now reading uh, the novel by Stephen Pressfield, Gates of Fire. Um, And we're also doing some historical reading as well. Just to remind you, Leonidas was one of the two kings of Sparta. Sparta had two kings. Kings, in addition to having religious roles, led the army. They were not monarchs in the conventional sense. Sparta was run by an oligarchy, a small group of men with a certain amount of input from the soldiers. And Leonidas led the Greek army at Thermopylae, where the Greeks had sent a force to try to stop the Persian invasion in a narrow pass in central Greece. Uh, There were 300 elite Spartans leading an army of about 8,000 Greeks. And they faced an enormously larger Persian force. We don't know how large, but uh, it's not out of the question that there are 100 to 150,000 Persian infantrymen there facing the Spartans. And the Spartans were able to hold them off for three days and to inflict great casualties on the Persians, both because they had chosen their terrain Uh, wisely. The narrowness of the terrain was a force multiplier. And because the Spartans were elite soldiers and uh, who um, were quite effective, and they were heavy armed infantrymen, the Greeks were in general, whereas the Persians were not. As you know, the Persians eventually triumphed because uh, with the help of a uh, Greek trader, or at least a Greek local who believed in the Persian cause, thought resistance was hopeless, they found a way around the Spartans through the mountains and were able to cut the Spartan army off. Rather than retreating, the Spartans chose to stay, and uh, all but two of the 300 died, including, of course, Leonidas. Um, And whether he did this, as Herodotus tells us, whether he did this on purpose, as a sacrifice, believing the gods required it for Sparta to survive this war, or whether it was a mistake and an accident he meant to escape, uh, is something for the scholars to debate. Uh, 
So I know that Leonidas is really a symbol of leadership, and uh, which is why I wanted to bring an expert on leadership uh, to talk to us today about Leonidas. Uh, and so I'm very happy to introduce uh, our guest, uh, Jim Emmerich. He's the founder and president of Profit with Purpose Choink LLC. Uh, maybe we should write it on the board because it's not pronounced, spelled the way it's pronounced. And maybe Jim will tell us something about that name. Um, it's an international network of organizations in relentless pursuit of the good and best within themselves, and even more so in the good of the good and best in others. He, tell, he writes, often this is accomplished by aligning leaders with their organization's values and achieving breakthrough performance via an inspired and engaged workforce. He is an academy leadership master facilitator and is trained and coached professionals here in the US and Canada, the UK, Spain, Germany, Peru, Chile, and Australia. He's a graduate of the US Air Force Academy, and he served as a technology program manager developing and integrating next generation spacecraft computers into over 50 platforms, including the Cassini Huygens probe. In 1992, he co-founded and led Innovative Systems and Technologies Corporation, or INSYTE, I-N-S-Y-T-E, pioneering three generations of radio frequency systems on chips with diverse teams in the US, Scotland, and Canada, selling the company in 2006. Afterwards, he served as vice president of advanced technologies at ITT and delivered their next generation communications platform technology. In other words, uh, unlike uh, uh, us historians, Jim actually knows something useful. So Jim, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. We're really delighted to, to have you. Pleasure's mine, Barry. And, great, and you're seeing Ithaca at its winter best. <laughs> so I want to begin the conversation by asking a question. Um, it would be easy to write Leonidas off as a fanatic or a militarist, and yet he's a popular and admired figure in modern culture. Why do you think that is? It's a great question. And just to reiterate it, why, why was he admired? And it seems that we're often drawn, maybe even more so today, to, to someone who, who does something, not just heroic, but someone who serves a purpose greater than themselves. Think about the folks who we champion, especially in pop culture or in business. There's someone who's probably served something greater than themselves and done something heroic. We seem drawn to that fantastic sense of purpose, and I think there's continuity there. Um, so uh, the sense of purpose, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what you mean by sense of purpose. Sure. If we think about sense of purpose, think about, think about the type of organizations. Think about if you're in the a military today would be a classical example. What if you're put on the front lines of, of something today where if you lose that battle, let's say territory is lost or freedom is lost. We can also apply that though to purpose as civilians. What if you are a life-saving doctor? What if you're teaching medical students to save lives? There's a great sense of purpose there. And so an effective leader can tie in the people within an organization to that sense of purpose. They're going to want to rally towards that. Okay. So sense of purpose. So just to play devil's advocate, what if your sense of purpose is evil? What if you have a strong sense of purpose, but you want to commit genocide? So, mm -hmm. so what's the question then? The question is, <laughs> Uh, is sense of purpose enough? Is sense of purpose 
uh, a two-edged sword? Is it something good, or is, can it be evil as well as good? How do we decide? It's a, it's a, that's a that's a great it's a great question. Hitler Hitler was a very effective and charismatic leader. Was he good? Not so much. Probably evil incarnate. So so you're right. Purpose alone is not enough. But if we think about leadership in the rawest sense, we can think about it as influence. And certainly people can be influenced, and they can do very very evil things. So we also would like usually a moral compass associated with that as well. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk a little bit about leadership yes. philosophy in a bit. Yes. It's a great question. Okay. You can be influential and awful. Yeah. So, okay, um, with that in mind, um, so one of the things that interests me is how much interest there is today in Sparta. Um, and uh, I think people are more interested in popular culture in Sparta than in Athens. But Athens was a democracy, and we're a democracy. It's true that Athens was a flawed democracy, but we're not without flaws ourselves. Uh, and yet, people identify with Sparta more than Athens. Why do you think that's the case? Well, it's interesting because you you, you call it a, a democracy, and certainly we're in a you know we're in a, a republic in in this country. But again, it's it's what are we what do we become drawn to the most? Mm -hmm. So. For example, um, we can think of think of think of a startup company. You can have someone who who could be almost a raging lunatic, but also can have a vision. You can have a very powerful vision that can that can move an organization or lift it off the ground. We hear about the classical startup. We're very drawn to something like that because there's passion behind it. If there's a sense of purpose, and it's also something that can often change the world. Mm -hmm. Whereas if something is, uh, say, running steady state, and everyone's in committee form, who's, who's ever heard of a breakthrough happening via committee? Okay, most of the things that happened in our start in our startup that were that were revolutionary weren't the result of a committee. So you think people are attracted to Sparta because of strong leadership? That and probably more, say, underlying passion behind it as well. Mm -hmm. The Athenians had passion, too. <laughs> now, in fairness, we haven't studied Athens much in this class yet, so uh, we, don't, uh, we don't know it. Let's play with that a little bit. Yeah. Think of, we're all familiar with Apple Computer. Think about when, when Steve Jobs ha started that the first time, not when he came back, and he's trying to recruit John Scully to actually come over and run the company, who eventually was going to force him out, but before that. Do you remember what he asked John Scully? John Scully was running PepsiCo then, and he said, "Do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to sell sugar water, or you want to change the world?" Hmm. That's a pretty attractive proposition. And sometimes I think there's almost a romance or a lore that we can be drawn to, if you will, that Spartan, raw, passionate leadership. Okay, that's good. So let's let's ask let's ask the class now. What is Sparta selling? So if, uh, in a sense, um, it, is it Zio in this book? He is John Scully. He's attracted to Sparta. He joins Sparta. Uh, what's Sparta selling? They're not selling Apple computers or iPhones. Respect? You mean they, they earned the respect of other yeah. Greeks? Okay. That's good. I was 
like what? Yeah, that's interesting. So, what's appealing about the Spartan way of life? Excellence. Yeah. So the height of arete, uh, excellence, honor, courage, uh, such that it earned them the respect of other Greeks. Anyone else? What's Sparta selling? Selling uh, revenge. Revenge. On who? What? On the Argives. Right. See, uh, <laughs> he's burnt, his village is burned yeah. by the Argives. The Argives, mortal enemy of Sparta, so is the other name joined Sparta. Okay. So it just happens to be the accident that Sparta's going to be the best tool for his revenge. That's yeah, not so much the Spartan way of life. I think to some certain degree, it's also selling freedom. Like you get that reading on like, the Greek, ancient Greek freedom versus like, what we would consider. Right. But like, you don't have to submit to anybody else. You might have to follow this rules law that might be constricting, but you will not be oppressed by anybody. Right. That's really good. It's, uh, it's freedom as autonomy, not so much freedom as do your own thing, because if you're in Spartan, you don't get to do your own thing, uh, but you get to be know that nobody else, nobody outside of Sparta can tell you what to do. And that's perhaps different than what the Athenians are saying. Anyone else on what Sparta's saying? I'd call it a form of escapism. Tell me, yeah. So you think that, that, that's really interesting, thanks. You think the Spartan way of life could prepare a Greek to be an Achilles, say? Or at least aspire to be one. Aspire to be one, yeah. Uh, maybe Achilles is aiming too high, but in that direction. Anyone else? And what's appealing to the Spartan way of life? No, you, you. So it's 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 very that's very good. Thank you. So it's it's partly the appeal of being in a in an elite uh, of achievement, and given that Greek society puts so much emphasis uh, for males at any rate on uh, uh, on being in the military on military values, that's very appealing. Um, how about for women? Is there anything about Sparta that's appealing for women? I'm sorry, I can't hear. Yeah, we talked about how I think Spartans didn't want to have Yeah, so Sparta gives uh, both gives women more uh, opportunities than Athens does. In some sense it's more egalitarian, and as you say, 
the ideal Spartan woman is a strong woman. So that might be appealing to some people as well. And of course, they also um, have the, uh, the, the ace card to play of the most beautiful woman in Greek history, or Greek mythology. And who's that? Helen. Helen. Yeah, Helen's a Spartan. So um, they don't have to feel that they're giving up uh, beauty and traditional femininity and also and, in, as well in order to be strong. Anything else? Appeal of Sparta? You mentioned that Sparta offers women public education as well. Yes, public education. Yeah, so that's much more than a woman would get in Athens, unless she happens to be wealthy and can, her family will give her a private education. That's really interesting. So uh, the, the idea of a, of a sense of purpose. Uh, we'll have to see if we think that Athens can give you a sense of purpose as well. But yes, that's, that's, that's really interesting about Sparta. Thanks. Jack's a ringer. He's, he's done this in another class. So we, we're, go, we're looking ahead a little bit. And yeah, so when the Athenians, when Sparta eventually declares war on Athens, we haven't gotten up to that yet, they, they can point to the fact that they are stable and consistent. Uh, whereas the Athenians, as a democracy, suffer from fickleness. Yeah, of course. Okay. So how is, how is the autonomy? Well, the Athenians would say that they, they're no less, they, they too offer autonomy, as much autonomy as Sparta because of the power of their state. But their definition of freedom is completely different. Athenian freedom is much more like the way we define freedom today. It's the freedom to do your own thing, to do what you want, uh, the freedom to, to be yourself. And uh, as we'll see in, in a later lecture, uh, they claim there's no contradiction between that and being a great warrior. Does any of this resonate with you? Sure. Tell us. Well, one, one thought that I had that I think all of you were touching on with your answers, and they're, they're terrific answers, is I think we're all scratching at culture. What is Sparta selling? And to me, it's, it's, spelling, it's, it's selling a very definitive, elite culture, and I think we can derive a lot of the, the comments from that. And it's interesting because, and I'm, I might be jumping ahead, but um, to tie some of these points together, if we think about today, you know, contemporary factors, think about what fundamentally motivate, motivates people, what actually funda fundamentally motivates people, because leaders tend to create a motivational environment. And if you, for instance, read some of the, I think some of the best work being written about this today is written by Dan Pink. He says that autonomy, mastery, and purpose are fundamental motivators. And I was thinking about that very well while mm -hmm. well, well, these answers were coming out because, again, we were scratching at those. And I think, there's some, I think there's some range in the term 
autonomy, certainly when we're comparing uh, Athens to Sparta, and there's also certainly the draw from the Spartans for mastery, right? You think about how, how they focused on mastery, especially with the males. Mm -hmm. And again, add in the sense of purpose. Those are three strong fundamental motivators you can use to, to tap into there. It makes you wonder what it would be like to be a young, a young male in that environment in Sparta. It'd probably be like wanting to join the, the SEALs in the U.S., but maybe times 10. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan Pink's version of a definition of autonomy, he, he's not talking so much about the autonomy of the unit as opposed to other units, but the autonomy of the individual. Correct. Within, so for, for example, that's a good point, within, within a unit. So for example, if we look at the modern workplace today, organizations where you can actually execute your tasks with autonomy yield significantly higher rates of engagement when there's a significant amount of people already in the workforce today that are either disengaged or actively disengaged. That's interesting. Isn't there... Um a possible contradiction between the goals of the unit and the autonomy of the individual. What happens if you have someone who just doesn't fit in, like Achilles? <laughs> <laughs> I'm tempted to, to ask the, the, the audience that question. Please do. What, what, do, what, do, what do you think about that? What do you think about, can there be a contradiction with offering autonomy, say, within an organization? Or put it another way, might the wheels come off? How, 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 do, how, do we, how do we deal with that in, in a modern organization or company? They're thinking. Is your question how do we deal with it, or is it a problem? Let's put it this way. What could be a risk? What could be a risk at having autonomy at the individual level in the workplace? When stuff has to get done, there's deadlines, things need to be built. Stuff needs to get shipped. The goals of the individual don't necessarily need to match what the entire group is trying to do. So if the entire group is trying to do one thing and one person is going off and doing their own, it like can mess up the entire sense of like well if what you're saying is sense of purpose, it can conflict with what everyone else is trying to do. And then everyone else is like, Oh well if they're doing their own thing, why can't I do it too? And then it just messes up everything that was being planned in the first place. Great, great response. So what could, what could an effective leader do to either mitigate that or to, or to create conditions where that's less likely to happen? If you have an age, yeah, please. If it is something that is so important, like with the Spartans, we're going to war, we're going to fight this, you can't just let somebody run off, because if one person runs off, everyone's going to be like, oh, they're going off, so why am I staying here? So if the leader is there, and the leader's like, oh, we're all doing this, it's going to make everyone be like, oh, well, since my leader is doing this, I can follow them. So it, it sounds like, that's a really good answer, thanks, and it sounds like you're saying that one solution to the problem is, is on, in emergency situations, in urgent situations, you have to restrict, you have to have a leader who can restrict autonomy. But in non-emergency situations, you can have much more free. Do, do you want to feel them? Sure. I feel like the 
Spartans probably had less of a problem with individuals wanting autonomy than people nowadays do because of their culture. Because they like really instilled a sense of brotherhood among the soldiers. Like you are protecting the guy to your left. You are mm-hmm. obliged to be there for him. And so I feel like they really encouraged them to think less about themselves and more about the people beside them. I think that's that's undoubtedly true. Yeah, Let's return point. to that in just a moment because I want to get a couple of because th- you bring up a really interesting point. Go ahead. I think punishment is a really good. Sometimes they exile people. One, one more over there. I think that you need to incentivize your individuals to have their goal going up to the goal of your group. Thank you. <laughs> she, she brings up the A word. And the, the word we can use there is alignment. An effective leader will align the goals of the organization with the vision, the values, the purpose of it. And if we're an effective leader or a smart employer, we'll, we will only hire people who are prone to having those compatible values. Because if, you've, if you have aligned values and you can align the goals, then there's probably not that much risk granting autonomy. But back to your point in the, in the front here. One of the things that the military has used that's very effective in the civilian world actually started about 1980. It turned out in the United States Navy, there were certain operational commanders that were vastly outperforming other ones. So naturally, people got curious. Think about that. If you've got the same ship, the same mission, the same complement of crew, the same number of officers, the same number of enlisted people, the same positions, trying to do essentially the same thing in the same environment, why were so many, over and over again, certain crews were absolutely outperforming the other ones. And we're not talking by a small margin. What do you think was happening with those crews that performed so well? Good question, right? So do I, hear you, do, do I hear you implying that they had a well-understood set of directions from their commander? Yes. Very good. Because the difference was the commander, the commander's intent. And more specifically, what happened at the change of command is specifically what the commander laid out in what we could call in a civilian equivalent a leadership philosophy. A leadership philosophy. 
And it was so strong and so powerful, there were things that we could find that were essential elements of any leadership philosophy, and one of those would be expectations. And there is a fantastic example in, in the Gates of Fire. Now I'm returning to your point. And in fact, I'll, I can tell you it's on page 225 through 227. And Leonidas, before the Battle of Thermopylae starts, he clarifies his expectations. Despite the fact that this is such a well-trained group, he essentially lays out, and over those three pages, commander's intent or a leadership philosophy. And he's pretty darn clear about it. And to your point over there, autonomy was probably being quite restricted then. So really good discussion and an opportunity to bring up a leadership philosophy. Mm -hmm. Shall we press on? Yeah. So let's see what the next question is. Um, so the, the next question is really about something we've touched on already, and that is, is leadership compatible with democracy? So the Spartans, in a sense, solved the problem of individuals going off and doing their own thing through brainwashing. They have an educational system that starts when, uh, for boys at any rate, when they're seven years old. And they are inculcating obedience uh, through a very restrictive and very all-encompassing, very physical educational system. So by the time they get to be adults, they are conditioned to obey. But we don't want that in a democracy. Do we? <laughs> Where does well, this is this is this is this is this is a fun part for us because uh, leadership. There's there's a place for leadership everywhere, and and leaders. In, in fact, I would I would suggest leadership is is fundamental to a, to a democracy operating. Mm -hmm. But I think I think that requires us to probably untangle a little bit what we mean when we're talking about leadership. Or, for instance, differentiating leadership, per, say, from authority. Mm -hmm. How would you differentiate leadership from authority? Okay, well, let's, 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 <laughs> let's bring that up. Let's bring that up. Who, has, who in this audience has ever felt that someone was a genuine leader or highly influential who had no authority over you? Tell us. I guess like the factory leaders on my cross country team, mm -hmm. like they weren't considered by the coach to be like the cross country's like official captain, but they would like lead like the group in stretches and stuff like that. Why did why did other members of the cross country team want to follow them? Help them out. Why, why else would we follow someone who doesn't have authority over us? More experience, sure. Sure, maybe they're modeling success. Fantastic. They inspire us. How? Fantastic. Say again? Confidence. Confident. 
So a whole bunch of reasons, and that's a nice thing to differentiate. And I think you've already you've showcased that we can correlate leadership with influence. Let's flip it around the other way. Who's ever been in an organization where someone believed they were a leader because they had authority, but they were actually <laughs> a poor leader? I don't know how many of you have been in the workforce for long. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I was actually in the Marines, so I had a, I had a sergeant and a corporal who did not embody leadership. And uh, through use of their authority and then try to push people to do things, it actually push people away. Sure. The beatings will continue until morale improves. Right? <laughs> that, that doesn't work so well right now. And it's, mass punishment. And mass punishment, absolutely. So if we think about leadership in a broad sense with regard to influence, not so much necessarily authority, I believe then mm -hmm. now there's room for that in a democracy. Because if we want to do good, we probably want to have influences that lead us to good, which is an opening for leadership. So you have to have a leader who, who it isn't just invested with power, but who has qualities that people respect. Yes. And we can go further. I would, I would go further to say, what, let, let's, we could ask ourselves, what, what, what's some of the essential currency, the essential currency of a leader? And we could discuss this for a while, but I'll throw two pieces out there for the group to consider. And then I'll ask you to comment on that. How about credibility and trust? When we thought about who we, tr who we want to follow. Let's play with it this way. Think of, think of what, what, what happens on the, on the headlines of the newspaper and the news, mm -hmm. daily or weekly. There's someone in, in a position of public trust, maybe someone who's famous, maybe someone who's running a, a large organization, maybe a public figure. What happens when that person loses trust or credibility or both? Say that again, louder. Generally, they lose the confidence of the people who are supporting them. I'd rather be like a board of directors or the electorate, and they have to step down. They can't lead anymore. You nailed it. They can't lead anymore. So we can call credibility and trust as essential, some of the essential currency of any effective leader. But note, notice how it can take a long time to, to build that up or earn it, and it can be lost in an instant. So some of you have uh, referred to teams, athletic teams, which I know that some of you are on, um, and uh, leadership in athletic teams. Uh, but I think we'd probably, and probably most of us have been on one team or another at some point in our lives. I think we'd all agree that leadership in a team is different than leadership in a classroom, partly because, lead, partly because followership in a classroom is different than followership on, in a team. Classrooms uh, tend to be less organized, more democratic. Um, is that a good thing? Would you like more requirements and discipline in your education? I don't think you would. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I, there, there are 
But there, that's a good point, but there aren't coaches on athletic teams who say to the team, what do you guys want to do? Are there? Speaking about certain professional sports, I don't think there's, I don't think it goes that far to the extreme, mm -hmm. but there's definitely structure in the sense that we're going to play a certain way, and that's the end of it, but there's flexibility. True. And I do, th I do think that a good coach has to be able to read the players and know what's going to work and what's not going to work. They're not all, you know, the players are not automatons. The coach will say, do this, do that. Um, so the coach has to be a psychologist. And yet, um, there's more, the coach tends to have more authority. Not as much as a coach. Yeah, how so? Yeah, I think in team sports, <coughs> if I'm, I don't know if I'm oversimplifying it, but there's two sure. ways to go, win or lose. Mm -hmm. I think most people on the team want to win. Whereas in um, academics, everyone is, it's not everyone working for the same win. They're not right. on the same team, we're all on different teams. Right. And everyone has different uh, great aspirations, I guess. Yes. So, Yes, that's a good point. So um, the goal is really the crucial difference. Yeah. On a team you want to win or lose, in a, in a class, especially a large class, it's a little more flexible as to what you're going to do. So maybe, uh, maybe our interest in Sparta is an interest in one aspect of our lives, but not all aspects of, of our lives. Somebody said earlier, uh, Sparta is appealing because it allows you to be the best that you can be. And we're willing to accept pretty rigid discipline towards that goal. But that's not the way we want to run our lives in all ways, our, our public lives in, in all ways. Does that, does that make any sense to you? It does. And I'm still... I'm still thinking about the teams, <laughs> uh -huh. so I don't know if we should do this now or, or postpone it a bit, no, but, teams. but what are, let's generalize a little bit, let's generalize, let's expand team a little bit to include, let's say, and I'm saying this in a contemporary sense, professions. What's an, what's an essential discriminator or characteristic of a highly effective team or profession? Um, so I'm in the fashion industry, actually, so I've been working in a lot of creative fields, which comes with some pros, but also some cons in terms of leadership when you have a bunch of creative people in one room trying to make decisions. Um, so what I've learned through my, with my work experience is the more successful 
Wonderful. And might, might you say then that what that leader did was create a very specific environment then where everyone could thrive. Now let's try one other thing, because that's a, that's a really keen insight. Let's think at the individual level. At the individual level within a team or a profession, what's something that's a requirement, a requirement for that profession to be upheld or for that team to, to stay and remain highly effective? Absolutely. How about this? Let's do one more. Let's say, let's say we're watching a professional football game Sunday afternoon, and, there's a, and it's a pretty heated play, and, some, and one of the players feels he, uh, someone gave him a cheap shot, and he gets up and he wants to walk over and he just wants to rip the other guy's helmet off, but his own teammate walks over and grabs him. What's going on there? You could. It would hurt the team, and that person's going to step in and prevent that physically. It's like Athena in the Iliad, <laughs> keeping Achilles from attacking Agamemnon. Exactly. And so what's, hap what's happening there is the team member or the person in the profession is holding their teammate accountable. And think about that in a contemporary sense. If, if others won't hold each other accountable, one, you're unlikely to have remain a high-performing team, and the other one is, you, if it's in a profession, your, your profession is probably being degraded, or maybe you're just pretending it's one. Mm. So that's what I wanted to bring out. So what's the bottom line? The bottom line is that, well, let's, let's go back, let's go back to um, our Spartans. Remember when they trained? How did, how did they assemble themselves physically in line? The phalanx. How did they, how was that assembled? Oh, it's just uh, each man, uh, like, they together with their shields to protect the man in front of them, are to their right, and they just have their spears and, and what's going to happen if a single individual doesn't do that? That's the point. So the point is, the point is that a leader is going to create an environment that you described that's highly motivational, but it also needs to be an environment where the team members are going to hold each other accountable. And Greek society, especially Spartan society, has more of a communal ethos than, say, our society today. Part of that is technological. I mean, they simply didn't have the devices and abilities that we had to be on our own. I mean, we've seen that, uh, you and I, not them, have seen that in our own lifetimes change in American society uh, with the digital revolution. Uh, things were just a bit more communal before than they are now. Sure. And you could say I experienced that in my, in my time in the military when it was ingrained into me, duty, honor, country. You know, that was, right. that was an earworm in my head for five years, yeah. at least. <laughs> 
So, and, and for the Greeks, in, in with their primitive technology and their, their communal system of the, of the city-state, the polis, even more so than for us, the emphasis is on the in community rather than the individual. Nonetheless, as we've seen in the case of Achilles, they do have some sense of the individual and the, uh, the desire of the individual to defend his own honor and his own position, or her own honor, own position in society. We see it with like, Helen as well, who also turned out to be not such a great team player for Sparta. So um, let's talk a little bit about Leonidas uh, and the kind of uh, leader that he was. And uh, I've got a, uh, an, a quotation from Gates of Fire, and you'll excuse my language in advance. The quotation says, what's the difference between a Spartan king and a mid-ranker? One man will lob this query to his mate as they prepare to bed down in the open in a cold, driving rain. His friend considers mock theatrically for a moment. Quote, the king sleeps in that shithole over there, he replies. We sleep in this shithole over here. Does that speak to you, Jim? <laughs> it's a loaded question. Actually, it's, it's a fun question because it starts start asking us a little bit what kinds of leaders are there. Have you ever wondered or, or thought, gee, do I need a certain style of leadership here? Or I seem to be drawn to this person, but it's very different than that leader. We've probably had those thoughts. And I'm going to throw out a reference that I think can help us frame this. And Sidney Finkelstein, a professor, I think Dartmouth, wrote a book called Super Bosses. And he classifies really effective bosses, or if you will, leaders, who greatly influenced their entire industries. And he, he, came, he comes up with three categories. And they are the iconoclasts, the glorious bastards, his term, not mine, and the third one are the nurturers. And I think that's instructive here. So for example, an iconoclast is someone often artistic, very creative, who just wants to be the absolute best and often in a solitary way. Think of a Miles Davis, maybe a Picasso, a Mozart, people like that. Now, think of the glorious bastards, okay? The ones who just want to win. I bet we all know some like that, both at home and in business. Finkelstein calls out Larry Ellison, who runs Oracle. The guy wants to win at everything, right? Including the America's Cup, all these things. And the last one is the nurturers, and he calls out Bill Walsh. Legendary quarterback, legendary coach of the San Francisco 49ers, who not that many years later had so many proteges, they were about they were coaching at least a third of the teams in the NFL. So given those iconoclasts, glorious bastards, and nurturers, what kind of leader now do you think Leonidas was? I'm curious what you think. This would make a good exam question, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are definitely elements of his leadership that are impressive. It is worth noting, and I can't say exactly 
besides the religious times, and he was like, no, 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 let's go, and the rest of the country didn't follow him. The only people that agreed to follow him were his personal bodyguards. Mm-hmm. Now, so who can... There's definitely elements of his leadership that are impressive once they get to Thermopylae, but he couldn't... He, his leadership, his style of oration, his presence wasn't enough to convince the rest of the country to follow him. I don't think he went there intending to take jump... Like, once he decided to leave, he knew who was coming with him, but I'm sure that he would have preferred to have a, a more effective force. Mm-hmm. Let's see if we can map his style to the three styles we just we just mentioned, right? The the iconoclast, the glorious bastard, and the nurturer. Well, I just I wanted to make a point about stratifying those three groups because um, a good leader has characteristics of all three of those demographics in the sense in which, based on the situation, act. <coughs> I agree. Now go out on a limb and, and tell us what you think about Leonidas with regard to those so two, those three. Against his, the person that he's fighting against, he's going to be the absolute best. In terms of taking care he's of... Gonna be, so in the battlefield, he's a glorious bastard. Correct. Sure hope so. Yes. <laughs> Whereas when he's looking to um, his troops taking care of their well-being and morale, he's going to be more of a nurturer in terms of the living environment, Terrific analysis. Who else would like to comment? What you concluded is almost exactly what I wrote in my notes. Almost exactly what I wrote in my notes. He, he seemed to be a nurturer, especially when he would delegate to, to the young captains and others and say, you know, go do it. Mm-hmm. But, when, but boy, he wanted to be there in the front and be a glorious bastard as well. Can we add Achilles and Hector to the mix? <laughs> what are they? That's each of them. good at something, but almost like a, like a Picasso or an artist, sort of being, being alone, or sort of being alone, whether it's in, in your vision, or in Achilles' case, oftentimes literally alone. When Happy to stand out. And he's in his tent, and especially, I mean, Achilles, to sort of uh, use an overused trope, is sort of in a, in, a, in a league of his own, or in respect to his uh, battle prowess.
refers him to action, but Patroclus is a personal friend of his, and that's the time when he decides to finally act, which is a more individualized issue than something like that, classic. Yeah, Bruce. And even in the first place, it's kind of Achilles' fault that they ended up in this situation because he was angry that he didn't get honor and what he deserved. So I feel like iconoclast and glorious bastard are more what he leads towards because his whole role is I deserve honor, I deserve glory, so much that he betrayed the people he's supposed to be fighting with because they don't respect him in the way he feels. So I feel like, like yes, he wants to help his country, but not more than he wants to like go after his own goals and do like what he wants to do. Those are all good points. What's the difference between Achilles and Hector? Myrmidons. Thank you. You're welcome. I believe that he'll be able to lead those men effectively in battle, and he's like the uh, iconic you know, hero of the battle. However, Hector, in a sense, you know, leads massive armies of Trojans, and his personality kind of mirrors that in which they need that kind of person to facilitate the leadership group versus individuals. So the bodies of armies that they command are much different, and that reflects the Good point. They are leading different different groups. Would Hector uh, say, "I'm not fighting anymore because I've been dissed the way Achilles did"? No, clearly he wouldn't. He wouldn't. So in that sense, does that make him more of a nurturer? Because he's not going to give up his own. He cares about his own honor, but he also cares about the group. Sounds like he sounds like more of a nurturer to me. Yeah. The person who he doesn't nurture is his wife and his kid. <laughs> yeah, I think to your point of him being a nurturer, is Paris his little brother? Yes. So I think that was a good example for me, showing that Hector is a leader and that he's able to encourage his brother to go out there and help Menelaus as he's about to Got more? When they're on the battlefield, they follow his orders. Agamemnon is the like-for-like comparison with Hector because he's the leader of the Greek forces. Achilles, you know, doesn't necessarily agree with him all the time, but hypothetically he's supposed to follow his orders, let Agamemnon take his glory, let Agamemnon take his slave if he so chooses. So 
So what kind of leader is Agamemnon? Good point. What kind of leader is Agamemnon? What is he? Uh, well, I mean, he does go out and fight on the field. Okay. That, that, you know, in popular culture, that's maybe misread that Agamemnon's actually a great warrior. So he has that aspect. Uh, but he's also a bit of an iconoclast, whereas my way or the highway. Yeah. Maybe he needed to be more of a nurturer if he really wanted to hold the army together. So can we, let's, oh, sorry, Colin. I wanted to probe this category of nurturer because uh, the example that you uh, brought up was of uh, a great coach nurturing individual other coaches that then go off and do their own thing. It seems like a personal relationship. But then we're applying that category and saying, well, Hector uh, is leading and is loyal to all of the Trojans, so he's a nurturer. But it doesn't seem to actually work in that case because it's not an individual one-to-one relationship. Where we see Hector uh, nurturing Paris, it's by yelling at him and shaming him to go fight. So how, how would you think that we should um, approach the nurturer category? It's a good question. I see the nurture category as a coach in, in its raw form, and that's, that's my own terminology. Um, and to, to extend that a little bit further, Coaching is one of the most powerful tools that a leader can have today. And when I'm saying, and I, and I like the use of the sports, an, the sports analogy, if we think about, say, Olympic athletes, and someone's, let's say, at the bronze level and they want to get to a gold, how many coaches do you think, coaches or trainers or experts, is that person going to have helping them? <laughs> Probably a handful, right? You can have all kinds of physical coaches. You can have trainers. You can have masseuse. You're going to probably have a dietitian, and a whole host of things. What's what's it? What does it usually mean in a corporate environment when, let's say, um, you're told that you need to go quote to coaching? What's that probably going to connote if you hear that in a in a corporate environment? If I need to be coached. If you need to be coached. How's that? How's how are you gonna? How's that generally gonna be felt within the organization? I'm generalizing. So you need to inspire people. Okay. What else might it mean? That you're doing something wrong. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing something wrong. We need to fix something. It, what I'm saying is, it's often mixed up. It, it's it's an evaluative comment. Okay. And genuine coaching isn't evaluative. So I think I think the genuine coach is the nurturer who's actually out to help someone to get better. At the equivalent of, hey, you're already a superstar, young man, but how would you like to become a gold medalist? That might be an attractive way to approach you with coaching. So that's the way I think about the nurture in the raw form. But it's a, it's a, it's a real nice way to tie into what happens in the corporate environment. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, a, a, a general a commander can be detached uh, and not always fight in the front line and yet show in symbolic ways and in certain ways that he is sharing uh, hardships with the troops.
True, except that sometimes the leader has a responsibility not just to his own honor, but to the group. And sometimes, uh, if you're the supreme commander, you don't, you can't have the lu- afford the luxury of going down with the ship. You have to live to fight again another day. So uh, that's why I, I say what I asked: Did was Leonidas uh, was he taking an unacceptable risk in, in you know exposing himself to die at Thermopylae? You could say that. You could say that. Uh, that they they have they have two kings. Uh, they have a spare, as it were. Uh, but still, you know, I, I don't think Sparta's he, Leonidas is not just a cog in a machine, and he has to have a pretty go- darn good reason to die uh, before he sacrifices himself. I'm sure we know it, and I should know it, but I don't remember it. So do, like, does any, do you guys they sacrificed their, their dominant king. I'm not sure. Maybe. He's certainly the most fa- more famous one today because we remember him because of what happened, but I'm not sure actually that he was uh, the dominant king at the time. But it's an interesting point. Right. Bad, but right. Being that you're a very good fighter and everyone looks up to you, then maybe you're needed. But I also don't know if it was futile and it was stupid decisions he can step in there. If his skill could have actually made a difference. In that case, then yeah, maybe it was some of the smartest things to do. Well, it depends in part on what the Spartan, what the goal of this 300 Spartans is. If their goal is to make a symbolic sacrifice, and if Leonidas really for religious reasons, as well as his own desire for glory. Herodotus says that Leonidas is motivated by a desire for honor and glory for himself and for his country, and that he decides he's going to die. Um, That's not totally impossible, given the fact that this is really a do-or-die situation for Sparta and for the free Greeks. Um, It's possible that this this is motive, and maybe we consider it a good motive. I I know that you had a point you wanted to make. Well, I think this is a good a good time to introduce um, catalepsis. Catalepsis, yeah. Do you remember the term in the book, catalepsis? Because it seems to me we're trying to bridge. We might there might be a balancing act or a fulcrum here, where maybe we're creating an inspirational, motivational environment, but maybe if we tip a little bit further, let's say wanting to be that super ultra glorious bastard and seeking that glory maybe maybe for ourselves I believe that's where this term comes in there and I, if I recall correctly it can be translated somewhat as possession mm-hmm. to where we become possessed then and maybe maybe we've lost sight of that original goal and maybe we're doing a little bit more for ourselves so you're suggesting that Leonidas became possessed I'm saying it's certainly possible right uh-huh. And, and it certainly seems that I would say I would say 
it was probably uh, more in the culture than perhaps than now. Mm -hmm. that, that propensity to lead by the front, but I think you're at risk of this when you're leading by the front and you're in the heat of battle. Right. That's, that's what it looked like to me. But I think I, I love the term. Thanks. Colin? Assuming that the oracle was an authentic one, though, we have the oracle saying that a king must die or Sparta will fall. Right. So it seems to me to be the wrong question to ask, should Leonidas be on the field fighting? Because in his mind, if he's not, Sparta's going to die. He has to die to save his city. So in that regard, he is the 100% responsible selfless leader. There are ways to interpret oracles. <laughs> so, yeah, if you, if, if you want to take it in that literal sense, then he absolutely is doing the responsible thing. He is sacrificing himself for the sake of his city. And clearly, it has a huge propaganda effect that he's willing to sacrifice himself for uh, the sake of his city. Uh, and yet there are others who say, come on. <laughs> this is classical Greece. We have philosophy. We uh, maybe not. <laughs> but then again, you might say, but it's Sparta, not Athens. And Sparta survives by, uh, by the mystique. So um, I know there's a hand up, but one quotation from the book that I actually don't agree with. Uh, on the eve of battle, Leonidas instructs his commanders that each of them should, quote, instill courage not by his words alone, but by the calm and professional manner with which he spoke them. War is work, not mystery. To me, that's America. This is Stephen Pressfield, the American, giving you the American philosophy of war. I do not believe the Spartans believe that. I, I really don't. You know, as a historian, I have to say, uh-uh, no, I don't think so. They, sure, they thought that war was work, but they thought it was mystery, too. And I think we don't really understand the Spartans unless we see that there's a whole religious mystique to the whole thing. Because um, otherwise, it just doesn't work. If it's just work, people are going to say, are you kidding? Who wants to do this stuff? I guess another aspect that we should also look at is the political background of it. Right. Leaders in ancient Greece and Rome were expected to lead the war because that's how they gained a lot of their political influence from winning glory and having their friends and allies see that. Yes, but I would make a slight uh, emendation. They're expected to lead from near the front. So be near the front, but not so close at the front that they're actually going to get killed. Well, even then, when you compare that to other cultures, such as modern United States, and even contemporary cultures, such as ancient China, where it was laid out in the article that the general should not be in the thick of the fighting, but he should also not be leading from right. the capital. Right. And it's that kind of appropriate distance from the fighting yes. that they're expected to maintain. Yes. Sure, it's, it's a mindset, and obviously, in, in this case, in Gates of Fire, did Leonidas think, ultimately, that those 300 would survive? No, so it's a different kind of victory, whereas juxtapose that with, for instance, you know, the very colorful statement by Patton in World War II, where he's basically saying, you know, no bastard ever won a war by dying for his country, he won a war by getting the other bastard to die for his country. <laughs> So, so, Jim, we have to let our Spartans go to their next battle. But before we do, is there any last thought you want to leave us with? Um, just uh, two things, three things. One, thank you very much. I really appreciated how engaged you were, and I, I think I enjoyed that the most. 
And third, feel free to uh, feel free to connect with me after the class because there's a great many of the things that you're learning here that are going to apply in, in your in your life in the coming years, probably that you don't even realize yet. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for listening today. If you've enjoyed the Chointcast, a positive iTunes review and kind word to your friends and colleagues would be most appreciated. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, hashtag Choink, C-H-O-I-N-Q-U-E, and visit the bookshelf at www.choink.com. Want to enroll in a Leadership Excellence course? Visit my homepage at www.academyleadership.com slash emmerich. Stay energized. <laughs>